This is Donna Honeycutt. Welcome to the Winning with Connections podcast. I'm very excited today to have some guests here speaking about banking and banking relationships to support emerging small defense contractors. We have Gwen Davey with us from Service First and Erin Jones, who works with her. Service First has been a great bank to us, to us at WWC personally. We can vouch for their tremendous value in helping us to pursue and win work and then support it and execute it once we want it. And they are here to help explain better why you should care about which banker you choose and why a banking relationship is so critical to success when you're an emerging small business. So Gwen, can you speak to that? Yes, absolutely. Thank you for having Aaron and I today. We, we enjoy speaking, especially within this, within the defense space and the government contracting space. We, we have been working in this space service first since 2006, when we started our Huntsville office, so we have a lot of experience working with small, uh, in, in some cases, startup companies with big government contractors, and we work with large government contractors. So I think we run the gamut from from startups that that you have, you know, individuals that may have had a, a, a military background and they want to start a business. And they don't, you know, they know certain things, but they don't know probably the financial aspect of what this involves. And so obviously they've been involved with contracts in certain, to a certain extent in their background, but it's not a company. If you have, you know, several people and you have a contract, that doesn't mean you have a company, you know, and organizing the company, setting up the structure of the company from operational side, administrative side, and the financial side is a lot of times what we see initially. And and when someone like that is coming to us, we are having conversations with them about here's what you look like now. And here's what how we we need to to get you from a, a financial perspective into a company that is eventually going to be, I would say, bankable in the aspect of lending, because a lot of these companies, small startup companies, are going to be coming to, to a bank at some point saying, hey, I have, I've been able to support smaller contracts from my own cash or assets. But now I need to borrow beyond my my capacity and what do I need to do in order to get a line of credit? That's the typical conversations that we're hearing. And, and, and Aaron is our kind of boots on the ground and he's out a lot speaking to smaller uh, government contractors and he can answer that. Yeah, I, I think in answer to your question, Donna, you know, what what can banks do for a startup government contractors? Obviously, we can provide that contractor with operating and uh, deposit accounts. We can provide them with a number of varying credit facilities, whether it be, let's say, corporate credit cards, debit cards, lines of credit, if there's a need for that, and those types of things. And then we can also provide them, you know, with, with some coaching as far as, you know, what we're looking for as far as financial reporting or down the road when it's required. When they're looking for a credit facility of some sort, you know, we can make the introductions to um, industry experts in both the, the accounting um, and the, the law 
you know, types of, of support, professional services in, in those arenas. So those are some of the basic things that, that I think a banker can provide, you know, a startup a DOD contractor. Wonderful. And, and does the government care who a company banks with? That's a good question. I, I don't know that they do. I know certainly there's, there's things in place where certain government people within government can't refer contractors to a given banker, so to speak. So I don't know that they do. So so in our experience, what has happened sometimes is we've been down selected to win an award based on a proposal that we put in and winning and executing that award would require us to tap into some of the loans that were pre-approved for in the form of a line of credit. And what we found is that sometimes the contracting officer will want to call our banker and talk to the banker about our financial solvency to make sure that the government isn't taking on too much risk if they award the contract to us. And there really will be the money to fund everything that needs to happen before day one of execution of the contract. Have you fielded these calls and what do those, those calls sound like? Yes, we have. And I think that's why it's, it's, it's really important for a startup or any defense contractor to have a relationship with a commercial lender. Obviously, the government can't pick up the phone and call a retail banking center and speak with someone and ask them uh, these types of questions. When you're working with a community lender or, you know, a, a straight commercial lender where you have that relationship, that one-on-one relationship, they can pick up the phone and speak with someone directly. We, we do for we do uh, field those types of calls and provide letters of credit all the time to uh, to contracting officers. I'm going to add on to that from a kind of more detail within the within banks is if we are going to make any statements, whether that's a written statement or otherwise, that X company has the ability to borrow whatever dollar amount that is, and it's usually you know in some cases, multiple millions of dollars. We actually go through, before we make any statements that there's that availability, we go through the process of, we we may not close a loan, but we go through the underwriting process to make sure that we're approving that loan. And we'll do that to be able to say, this company has the ability to borrow up to X dollars. And that's already a commitment that we make internally. It's not like, well, we think based upon what we know about them, it's probably going to be, you know, we don't make these general statements. If we're going to be asked about somebody's borrowing capacity, and most of the times we're asked, and it's a short kind of one, one form letter, when we're asked to make those statements about credit lines or availability of credit, we go through the process of collecting the financials and approving the loan through our approval process. And then we provide them with a commitment that we, if you get this contract, here's a commitment. We've already made that decision internally. That's really helpful. And then, so sort of in, in plain language, what is a, a government pricing analyst looking for, a government contracting officer looking for when they call you? What are the top let's say, two things that they want to understand from that conversation? They want to know, one, if the company or organization in question does, in fact, have a relationship with us, if the relationship is in good standing, 
i.e. we don't have some overdraft issues or loan defaults or anything of that nature. And then if they are credit worthy, um, if they are uh, able to secure, let's say, one to two million dollars uh, in a credit facility, should the organization win a particular award? OK, so let's let's sort of peel that back. And I, and I think this next question will go to the relationship and why the relationship with your banker is important. How do you prepare for that moment? Right. How do you prepare for the moment when the government contracting officer calls your bank? How do how does a company equip the bank to be able to say, yes, they're in good standing. Yes, I can vouch for the fact that they're solvent. Yes, I can vouch for the fact that if they're awarded this contract from a financial standpoint, they will be able to fund it. Well, I, I think first of all, the very first thing, and I'll let Gwen pick it up after this. I think the very first thing is the contractor needs to get us involved in the RFP process early on in the RFP process. Don't wait to engage us once the award has been made or you've been down selected. And now we're talking to a, a CEO. You know, when, when you're when you're in your right, when you're you're doing capture, uh, when you're in that phase of it. And you're actually or you're even responding to it, you know, an RFI or as soon as the RFP drops, get us involved. And, you know, this is going to be a requirement. Get us involved at that point so that when the CEO, if you are down selected and the CEO contacts us, we're already prepared because it does take it takes some time and effort on our end to be able to respond to that CEO in a timely manner. And I'll let Gwen talk a little bit about some of the things that we would need in that process. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. It's very hard for us to play catch up when you when when someone comes to us and say, hey, I've just been awarded this and now I need a letter of supporting a line of credit or availability of credit. And I need it in two days from now. It is very difficult for us to operate in that environment because now we're playing catch up. But what was the contract? What was the term? We need to know that up front. So the more time you have to have those discussions, even if we're okay with you didn't get the contract and we prepped you and we're ready for it, that's a better scenario than us the reverse that we're that we're trying to play catch up and that's never a good position for anybody to be in. So we're having conversations about here's the likelihood that we're going to be shortlisted for this or whatever the conversation is. Um, that we're trying to, one, we would need to collect if we haven't already, if we're not current with the financials, because if they're existing customer and we don't have a facility in place and we're starting the conversation, we're really now, we need to be prepared by getting financial information. If it's an existing customer that already has a credit facility, but let's just say, hey, they've got a credit facility for a million dollars, but this anticipated contract, they're going to need capability, borrowing capability to $5 million. We then may have to, we're going to have to get updated financial statements. And if we are going to be prepared as a bank to respond to a contracting officer or any other agency that have provides us with form letters to fill out and sign anything we're signing, we are going to take that loan through the underwriting process, which means we're collecting updated financials. We are collecting their pipeline and we're going through the entire pipeline, not only the contract that you're bidding for, 
but the other contracts that you're bidding for as well, as small or large as they may be. What existing contracts are you on? What is where are you in that contract? This that started a year ago and it's a three year contract. We are analyzing and asking questions about every contract in their pipeline, in addition to looking at the numbers and seeing you know, and this goes to general banking when you're underwriting, it's the ability to repay and collateral is your primary sources of, of repayment. And when we're analyzing a government contractor, we're doing the same. We're looking at certainly ability to repay and what's the collateral. And the collateral may be a current receivable or it may be a future receivable from the contract that you anticipate getting. And who's the, the, obviously the support of the guarantors are also part of the equation. Let's talk about that. So guarantors, guarantors are normally the owners of the company that will sign and say that they are responsible if the company defaults on the loan. Is that accurate? That is correct. They are looked at as a, most cases, a tertiary source of repayment. If one, the ability to pay from cash flow operations, then it's two, liquidation of collateral, and then the tertiary, in banking terms, a tertiary third source of repayment is to go to the principals who have signed and said, if there's a default and you owe me, then you will repay this loan. So, so the bottom line is, as a small business entrepreneur starting out in the defense space, more likely than not, you will be asked to basically put the value of your house and your assets up as a sort of... Uh, last resort for the bank to recapture the money and lend you if your company is unable to pay it back. Is that right? Yeah, that may be the, the case. Um, and, and again, if every loan, every company that comes and is evaluated is evaluated as an independent um, situation. But especially as we're talking about the smaller businesses, we, we're looking to what value, what support do those individuals provide? And sometimes we do need to look to second on homes or other things to provide support to the credit. So again, depends on the, the situation, how large the loan is, those types of things. And, and Donna, they, you know, these startup companies, the smaller companies should be prepared when looking for a credit facility from a lender. We're going to be looking at personal financial statements and we're also going to be looking at personal tax returns. And this is all on top of corporate tax returns and things of that nature. So in other words, if someone is starting out, they better have some good credit if they want their company to get some credit. Yes. And specifically in, in the service industry, again, you're collateral. You're not manufacturing a product. You don't have a warehouse with a lot of durable equipment. You don't have inventory. So in the services business, it's primarily the credit worthiness of the principles. So that raises a really interesting question. How do you vet product companies differently than service companies? Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. And, you know, in, in our market, we have more, and, it, and, and if I go from, you know, compare for the for service first, the, the Tampa Bay market, West Florida is our market. Those types of businesses are are much more service-oriented, professional services businesses versus if I would um, compare it to maybe our Huntsville office, we have 
more government contractors that are fulfilling contracts for the durable goods or manufactured products. And so, again, I would I would say the majority of what we're looking at. And we, but we have a certain in this market as well. We do have companies that are manufacturing um, the the the, the in, intricacies of that or the, the challenges of, of that are, are unique. We get we now have to get into the product. Where's the product being made, and where's the product being inspected, and what is the actual contract that you have for what type of product? And we're getting into the very details, very specific requirements in that contract. We need to make sure that when when the whatever product is made, that we can feel confident that the product is then going to get delivered and accepted. And this, again, is some uniqueness of, of a product versus a service. You get into the, the details of the manufacturing, the requirements of the contract. Um, and they get very specific in terms of who is inspecting the product, um, what happens if the product is not some part of the product needs to be rejected, timeframes. We as the bank, that's part of our process, asking those questions and diving into that much more detail. Much more complicated underwriting process without question. And is that that is something that Service First does, you know, banking for emerging defense firms that maybe have come out with a novel widget or a, a novel silencer or a novel IT product that they want to build speculatively and then sell to the government? Every situation is unique. And when you come to, and you said the word speculative, that's why I'm kind of jumping in on that is the research and development piece of some of those companies do provide additional challenges. If it's like, hey, we don't really have a product that's that's ready for sale, but we've got a great idea that is going to be, uh, and it's more of a our research and development type of situation, we've got a few more challenges with those. And other past performance and other things come into play with maybe some similar product. Is this a new product, but yet it's just a variation of an older product that is second generation. So there's a lot of things that may come into play with that. But if it's strictly a, we've never done this before, but we think this is a great idea and it's more of a research and development, those are, those are challenging from a collateral perspective, um, certainly. Okay. And at that point, an emerging business might want to look to the SIBR program that will give them different stages of grants to try to develop their idea. Absolutely. And, and we've, we've seen several of those. And again, those, those are certainly things we take into consideration. If they've been awarded uh, one or several of those types of grants, you know, so that they've got some traction. The government has obviously signed off, especially as they go through the different phases. You know, the government has an interest in their product. They've taken it through the paces. They've vetted the company, so to speak. Uh, so, again, those are all the types of things that we'll take into consideration. Great. So so going back to this idea of really as a small business owner in the defense space, particularly when you're very small, your own assets are up against your bet that you'll be able to repay your loans. In that framework, can you give us your thoughts about what is healthy debt to take on and what is unhealthy debt to take on? 
and, and just to clarify or to just for purposes of clarity in the question is that if you are a small or startup and again, typically we're, we might see the evolution of a company come through maybe a factoring relationship or an alternate financing relationship prior to coming to, to the bank because in every industry, startup companies are difficult. We have done startup companies in the government space. We, we've done them. We do them. Do we do every startup that comes to us? No, because, again, as I go back to saying, it's very individual. And so to answer your question, when somebody's coming to us, if they are personally very leveraged and want right away a credit facility and we have no relationship with them that's really hard to do and we usually have to to set them up to say if you have a specific contract maybe this alternate financing factor or, or other may be a good starting point now it's not the best uh, from a financial aspect and you know this that that it's a higher cost of fund does that mean a higher interest rate C- correct. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's expensive, yes. but you got in some cases, it's, it's where you have to start. And then the whole point would be as we look at those companies and we have conversations saying, Hey, make sure. And, we, and this has been real life situations that if they're going into a factoring relationship, you, that's not something that you want to typically have long term because it's so expensive. But also, are you with a factoring company that you can graduate back to a con- or graduate to a, a conventional line that like the bank does? Or you want to make sure that you can you're able to get out of that contract with the factor or maybe without a big expense? So those are the kind of conversations that we may have. But we want to try to get those companies to someone who can help them immediately and then have the conversations of here's what it's going to take to get you ready, so to speak, for a conventional banking line of credit. And it's a fantastic way for a startup defense contractor to get the financing that they need to meet the deliverables on their first contract or their first several contracts. Then when they've developed the past performance, they've established some 90 days accounts receivable that we can see. They've got some financial history. Then it's easy for them. It's easier for a bank to step in and and justify putting them in a, in a more traditional credit facility. And John, I think I got a little bit off track with your original question, so I do want to circle back to that with regard to the personal asset of the individual. That that if you are coming to a bank, even after maybe being with a factor, we really do want to have some personal assets that we can look to. If if a principal's coming in and, you know, is fully leveraged, has a home, and then it's, they've got debt against the home, and then they've got credit card debt. There's not a lot of support there. And so those are things that, that in any credit you look at, what additional support beyond my, like, as I mentioned before, my, my sources of repayment being, you know, cash flow and secondary collateral, that third source, does that principal or principals add any support with liquidity, maybe savings from or other assets that are not leveraged or ready? So 
Can we talk about factor loans to understand those better? I've, I've heard the term. WWC did not use those, but I'd like to understand better if you if you had to describe what a factor loan is in one or two bullet points. How would you describe it? Yeah, and so we at Service First do not do factoring, but the significant difference is in a factoring relationship. The factoring company actually buys the receivable from the, the a company, whereas in a conventional lending relationship, the, the receivable is being pledged against its security for the line versus a purchase of that receivable and the factor collects the receivable. That's the big kind of in a very short, concise way of saying it. And so what kind of percentage would you take when you're buying? So let's say the government owes me $100, and I understand that Service First doesn't do factoring. What kind of percentage might a factoring business take, and how much would they buy that $100 debt from me for? So the, the, the factor would do an assignment of claim with the contracting officer, so if you come to a factor with a government contract or you've got it, it, you know, you actually have a task order or purchase order. And let's say that purchase order is in the amount of a thousand dollars. The factor will advance typically about 80 percent of that thousand dollars. Once you've done the work and you've invoiced the government, since they've taken assignment of claim, the contractor invoices the government. The government actually pays the factor. Okay. Once a factor receives payment from the government, they then send the remaining 20% to the contractor minus their fees and whatever their, their, you know, whatever their various fees or interest might be. Okay. That's, that's really right? helpful. That's how, that's how it works in a nutshell. And then obviously, um, you know, they do their own underwriting as well. And there's a lot of different uh, factors that they consider as far as what they call, it's called the advance rate. So that could be 70, 80, 90 percent. But I don't want to get into their underwriting guidelines. I, I understand. But what we do need to do is make sure that people have an understanding of what a factor loan is versus a more conventional commercial loan. Absolutely. Uh, so what I'm hearing from Gwen is there is a time and a place for factoring, depending on the specifics of your organization and the specifics of what you've been able to sell or not sell. Yes. I think that there are absolutely different tiers of financing and alternate financing options for government contractors as well as non-government contractors. And and a conventional conventional line of credit may or may not be appropriate based on a, a number of factors, and, and timing is one of them. And so then you would graduate, let's say you started off with factoring, then once you have that history of delivering and being reliable and getting paid, then you can kind of graduate to working with a bank like Service First, where maybe you are eligible for a line of credit or particular loans based on particular opportunities you're going after. Yes, that's accurate. And then let's talk about the next stage. Let's say someone has set up that relationship they're working well with Service First. Maybe they have a robust line of credit. They draw on it. Maybe every time they need to launch a new contract. 
what's the next level of sophistication in that banking relationship? And at the point at which a company is up and running, it has the line of credit facility that it's drawing on because it's routinely getting new work. It's sort of leveled out in that way. What's the next step in the banking relationship? And what at that point, what value does the banker bring to the continued growth of that company from small business to medium-sized business? Well, from a from the perspective of, as you describe, an existing business that's been with us, we have a line of credit, we have the operating account, we're consistently and constantly in discussions with them about what's, what's next. One, just because they have something today doesn't mean it's still appropriate for today. And there may be products that they weren't using a year ago when we started the relationship because it wasn't appropriate at the time. And a year into the relationship, we say, okay, now you're ready for this other, this other product that you might want to consider because you've grown considerably or your, your employees are now at multiple locations and there's a variety of reasons. But I, you know, one of the products that you're familiar with is on the purchasing card. I mean, that's a product that's not necessarily used up front for smaller companies, but as they evolve, there are a lot of advantages to having a a, a purchasing, uh, and it's really an expense management product that is very useful to larger companies. That's something that I think, again, when when we're starting a relationship, we might not be talking about that. A year later, we are talking about that product. So I think the evolution of, of, of customer needs coincides with the evolution of the products we might introduce to them. And then not only from a product standpoint, but we always kind of want to be in communication with, with the customers to What's what's next for your company? What's next for the company? And making sure that we we understand that. And is it something that we can start now talking about to prepare for? Because you might need. And we've had this situation where somebody says, "I want to try to sell this company." Right. You know, so the M and A aspect comes in. Uh, Mergers and acquisitions. Yeah. Yeah. And we want to be prepared to whether those are introductions or getting somebody prepared, their financial uh, balance sheet prepared for the next step. If that's two years, five years, you want to have those discussions. So it's not always product oriented. It's always what's next for you. And let's talk about how we can help ourselves as a bank or as a resource for you. I, I will tell you in working with service first, one of the great values that we've experienced is um, getting that reality check about, you know, a number of things when we're looking to take on debt. Is that realistic? Is that healthy debt? I have confidence when it's been approved by service first that it is. I have confidence that we're not overextending ourselves. I have confidence that we'll be able to pay it back and we're not making exceptionally risky business decisions. And likewise, in the general day-to-day process of things like, you know, producing a borrowing-based certificate and having you review our financials, it gives me confidence, and I think this is how you can also give the contracting officer confidence, that we're doing things the right way, that we're accounting the right way. Um Everyone building a company 
has to start somewhere and everyone's going to build their first company sometime and you just can't know everything. And these processes, what I find, are not only useful for the benefit of the bank, but I find them very useful for the benefit of the borrower as well. Um, can you talk a little bit about the borrowing base certificate and what it involves and what it tells the bank in terms of the, the management decisions being made within the company? Absolutely. Um, so for larger companies, and every bank is a little bit different, um, when you're a smaller company and a bank is looking to take collateral, um, and let's just say if they're starting and they need a 300000 line of credit, the bank is typically at that level going to just put a blanket. Like we're underwriting, but generally you're putting a blanket lien on all assets of the company. When you get to larger dollar amounts, what is the, 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 the source of repayment? We are basing loan decisions on what the collateral is. Collateral is the contracts, it's the receivables. So we are monitoring the receivable base because that's what we've got is collateral. We're lending against receivables and those receivables are being collected and not going back in to pay down the loan. Then we need to be looking at that. So the borrowing base allows us to monitor our receivable base from a collateral standpoint from the bank. So when you get, and every bank is different, when you get to a certain amount, and I'll just throw out a million dollars for purposes of discussion, is if you're going to um, have a million dollar or two, even two million dollar loan, whatever it is, a bank is going to look and set up upfront as part of our loan process that we are going to lend against your receivables. And those are going to be receivables that are generally 90 days or less from invoice date. And we will then calculate. It's a formula. So this is a formula-based form that, that, that we send out and, and generally borrowers are asked to complete this form on a monthly basis, and it's generally 15 days after a month end, and it, it spells out formula-based, here's our current AR, here's all of our AR, here's our AR that, according to our contract, is 90 days or less, and then the, the next piece is what's the advance rate on that those receivables. Just to translate that, the AR obviously is the accounts receivables. And so you're looking to see, you're looking at the aging of accounts receivables. And even though someone may have been approved for a line of credit up to a million dollars, if there isn't a sufficient amount of liquidity already in the company or if the company has not collected on its on what it is owed timely, then you won't even take those receivables as continuing collateral to even get up to that one million dollars. Correct. So you're we can we can give somebody ten million line of credit, but your advances on the line of credit are limited to your formula based on the accounts receivable. And again it's you know ninety days or less, eighty percent of AR 90 days or less from invoice date, just as an example. So you can have, you may be approved for a larger line, as you state, and very good point, you're limited based on your formula. 
and and it even gets a little bit more detailed within your your barring based formula that there may be other what we call ineligible receivables and those can be you know some foreign receivables or some intercompany receivables those are backed out to get to what's called your eligible receivable and then your advance rate 75 80 85 whatever that's predetermined as part of the underwriting process is applied to that eligible amount so so getting the line of credit really is step one. Step two is sustaining enough churn in your company where you either have enough money already in the company or enough accounts receivables that are fresh enough and reliable enough that you will collect them that will also potentially further limit how much is available for you to borrow and may limit you from borrowing all the way up to the cap of the line of credit. Correct. Absolutely. That's helpful. So again, I mean, I understanding that this is what the bank needs for its own comfort that, uh, you know, the bank will get paid back. This also is a, just a very valuable management tool and accounting tool and, and reality check for a business to make sure they're running things well and not letting things leak or slip in terms of collecting on what they're owed. And it, it, my guess is, is it's probably a reflection of how the companies run all together. Yeah, because I think it also gives us, when we're looking at the, the um, barn based on a monthly basis, it allows us to, one, review that, and we then have conversations. So if we see that a contract has moved from, you know, the, the 90 days to the 120-day column or from 120 to 180, whatever it happens to be, we're having the conversation with the – we're calling up um, and saying, hey, I noticed that this particular uh, contract with this agency, it, what's, what's happening there? And then, and then again, it just spurs the conversation and it might be as easy as, well, we had to resubmit because, you know, just more of a, an administrative issue. And, it, and a lot of times it is an administrative issue. We, we do. We, we typically don't see that in the prime environment. Yeah. Uh, we see that more in the, the subcontract, uh, you know, a subcontractor that's invoicing a prime contractor. That's typically where we might see that. Not when the company is billing the government directly. So is that because the subcontractor can't make the prime ping the government to pay or, or why is that? Well, I, I mean, we've seen all sorts of issues uh, um, and I'm sure you could, you could speak to that yourself. You know, you submit an invoice to a large prime contractor, maybe the invoice, something isn't right with the invoice. It could be a digit or numbers are, are transposed, something happens and it goes to the bottom of the pile. Or maybe there's an issue between the prime contractor and the government, um, and sometimes the sub is the last to know. So, but you know, being able to track those things and us seeing that information on a, on a monthly basis encourages those conversations to be had. So, what does happen if worst case scenario you've you've mismanaged your receivables and you've mismanaged your execution of contracts? The sort of uh, most innocent scenario is maybe there's a government shutdown or an epidemic or something that keeps you from being able to continue to operate as usual and bill as usual while nevertheless you're still incurring usual costs. How will the bank approach that, and will anything change in terms of the bank's expectations to be repaid? Good question. Every bank is different. 
and we've had those situations. We have had the government shutdown. We have had this, uh, you know, current pandemic where payments across the board for all for clients um, have been extended. So knowing what the normal cycle is, knowing the business of, of that client is, is extremely important. We begin to ask if we're seeing payments go beyond the 90 day or whatever it is that's agreed upon in the borrowing base. We are then going and asking those questions. And if it's, hey, we've been on this contract for the last two years, um, we have had, we've seen maybe in, in in normal circumstances, sometimes they have administrative issues or with a, you know, this, this not anything that's really out of the norm. We can always adjust on a temporary basis, uh, do a modification to the borrowing base. And that may be, again, with for the example of the government shutdown when you were seeing, you know, extended payments. That's a very reasonable and understandable situation. And so in that case, the bank may, as I said, for for a temporary time period, say, okay, from from now until the end of the year, instead of being your receivable basis up to 90 days, we'll go to 120 days. Or if you're at a 75% advance rate, maybe the, the bank goes to an 80% advance rate on a on a temporary basis. So there's some, some modifications that can be done certainly in those situations. And what happens when when really you've failed and you can't pay back? How does that look? Well, th- yeah, things do happen. We, and I think we'll go back to the more that you are monitoring it, not only the cash flow cycle from your receivable base, but also looking at, you know, if you have the deposit account, we're making sure, hey, are those receivables as they come collected going to the account if you're not, you know, having a a controlled account or a lockbox or something about that. So it's not just, hey, what's your loan, what's your receivable base? The bank looks at, hey, I've noticed collections were coming in and it wasn't going into the all of it. It doesn't look like it was going into the bank account. So we're we really have to do upfront, and I think most banks do that when we have issues and and we hope that they're discovered early on. We are we are trying to work that out. The conversation is what what happened. You can't pay us now. Is this I can't pay you now, and I can't pay you next month, and I can't pay you next month, or is this I just can't pay you now? I mean, there's times where we we have uh, you know unfortunately every bank has it that loans go into default for non-payment. That lo- loans may go into you know default for technical uh, reasons that they loan a covenant. Um, those are things that we we want first and foremost to try to work those things out uh, because nobody wins when when we you know especially if it's a technical default you know, mm-hmm. we, we identify those we are trying to find out why they've happened payment default is kind of a, another situation if you have a payment default um, there's there are certain guidelines that the bank has to, to follow from a regulatory standpoint. We didn't, you know, really talk about a regulatory standpoint, but we we are a regulated industry and we have to follow specific guidelines to deal with non-payment. 
and we had to set aside reserves and, and it had an impact on the bank and the bank performance as well. But we're always looking to try to resolve the issue. And, and the quicker that we're identifying that, uh, the better it is for everybody. Wonderful. And, and But it gets down to, again, we mentioned, uh, Aaron mentioned taking an assignment of the claims. Yeah. You know, our, our recourse is the contracts, you know, taking the assignment of the contract and then we'll liquidation of any collateral, if possible, and to go back to the guarantor, is there in a default situation, are we looking to the guarantor to step up and, and we had resources to make good on this loan or make the payment, we're looking for that guarantor who showed, you know, the ability to, you know, ability and willingness are two different things. But if they have the ability to pay, we're expecting them to make good on that loan payment. That's fair. What have you learned from your customers in the defense space? Well, that's I'm going to start. That's a really good question. Because it's a little easier for, for, for me because my history in the government contracting space is is shorter than Aaron's. Aaron's been in this space for a really long time. I almost kind of evolved, you know, although Service First has been involved in this industry, me personally as a line of business and especially hiring and understanding the industry for me. I started with, I under, uh, you know, I know that these type of contractors are in the market and maybe I lent to one of them four years ago, but it was never an intentional line of business. When you begin an intentional line of business, you have to learn a lot. And from a more a higher level perspective, I have had to learn a tremendous amount, and acronyms is just one of them. <laughs> but, you know, and that's why it's important for us to hire people like Aaron, who know this industry, have have that have backgrounds here. And I think what I've learned, Donna, since being in the in the, the finance side of the industry, what I've learned from the government contractors is that there's a real need for service professionals in a government contracting heavy market like Tampa or West Florida. There's a real need for service providers or professional services people like bankers, CPAs and attorneys to really get to know the industry. There's not enough people, even within our business, the banking business, that have a healthy enough understanding of the government contracting industry as a whole. Um, and government contractors, what I've found is they really want someone that understands their business. They understand the industry as a whole. They understand the language. They understand the challenges. So that, that's really what, 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 I've, what I've learned since being here in Tampa. I, I agree with you. I think that there's um, there's just no substitute for an un- a deep understanding of the industry. And we have definitely experienced the difference between a service provider that is just a general commercial service provider versus a service provider that really understands the defense industry with all of its very, very different contracting rules and financial rules. What caused both of you to be attracted to this uh, and what caused Service First to focus on this particular market segment? Uh, well, that came uh, again for us because um, when we opened this, uh, the Tampa Bay and West Florida, now West Florida region here in 2017, it really came from our corporately and we're, we're headquartered in Birmingham that the Huntsville 
office was pretty excited to have a Tampa Bay presence because they have uh, been been involved in the industry and government and lending to a lot of government contractors and having a lot of uh, deposit relationships. And so they had a pretty strong and they're well known in that market. And they kind of opened our eyes, this the West Florida management team, to the to the real opportunity and need for that type of line of business here. And we said, okay, well, let's, you know, let's learn about it. We really don't know this business that well, as I said, kind of other than the occasional, I went to this company five years ago and it was a one-off type of situation. So understanding how to operate from a banking perspective, the line of business, and it's, and it's hiring people that understand that business. We also, in addition to having um, investigated and found the right fit, Aaron, from a business development perspective, we also hired an underwriter here that had previous experience, not only in banking, but it, um, as we talked about before, in a factoring environment, and she did a lot of government contracting. So that added just to our kind of our our bench of knowledge of direct experience in um, having those relationships. So that really helped us to one understand the business. We really like the business and to and allow us to grow the business here. Yeah, from my standpoint, coming from the Washington D.C. market, where I was a senior business development executive, and then coming here to Florida, being introduced to Gwen and, and senior leadership here in the uh, at the at the local Tampa Bay level, their willingness to and their desire to really to make a difference in the industry. And basically at leaving it to me that, you know, show us how, you know, we'll take care of the banking piece of it. You just go ahead and you build the brand in the government contracting world or environment or community here in Tampa. And it's, it's, it's been a great relationship. And, and I can absolutely confirm that um, you have been all of that support to us. And we really appreciated your support over the years and your being there exactly when we needed you to be there to help us sometimes get over the rough spots and sometimes help us plan forward, all with kind of an, an understanding of who we are and what this industry is. Thank you. Yes. It's been our pleasure. Wonderful. Any last words, last thoughts, same rounds? Uh, no, just want to thank you for the opportunity to, to have the discussion. I think it's an a, important one, and, and we want to provide information and be a resource to anyone in the industry. Always good. It's always a pleasure to speak with you, Don. Thank you, Gwen Davey and Aaron Jones at Service First. Bye-bye.